1: all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Iran mourns. Huge protests follow the death of Iranian General Qasim Samani. Retaliation promised. President Rouhani says there will be consequences for years and market unease. All prices climb as U.S. stock futures fall. It's Monday. Let's make a move. To first move, Great to be back with you on the show today. The latest on the escalating tensions in the Middle East following the death of Iranian General Qassem Soleimani and all the market reaction, of course. What a way to begin the first full week of trading for 2020. Let me give you a look at the global snapshot here. U.S. futures pointing to a weaker open with losses, as you can see, of around six-tenths of 1% across the board. That follows Friday's pullback of around three-quarters of 1%. It's always tough to gauge and price this kind of geopolitical risk. Right now, I'd call this a pretty measured response. For perspective, U.S. stocks hit record highs on Thursday of last week. It's not just the United States, though. The MSCI Emerging Market Index entered a new bull market last week, and European stocks were also trading around record highs before the session on Friday. So you could argue some consolidation here amid broader risks, risking events here makes sense in Europe today the majors off session lows but still down around 1% as you can see Germany the underperformer they're down some 1.3% what about the Asia session well the Nikkei fell almost 2% on the first day of trading in Japan of this year Chinese stocks though little changed The oil market remains key at this moment, too, continuing to make gains. These follow Friday's 3% plus rally to more detail on this shortly. But once again, compare these moves to the 14% oil price rise we saw during the attacks on Saudi oil fields in September of last year. Measured, once again, I think is the key word here. Our driver today is, of course, Iran. Massive. Angry crowds taking to the streets of Tehran for the funeral of General Qasim Soleimani. His daughter saying the killing would bring a, quote, dark day for the U.S. Meanwhile, the Iranian supreme leader, al Khamenei prayed and weeped over the general's body. Fred Pleitgen is in Tehran with the latest.
3: I've been in the thick of all this uh, pretty much uh, all morning. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of grief that's being expressed. So you can see that on those remarkable live pictures. There's actually some people uh, who have come out earlier today by official estimates who have said that they believe that well over a million people have come out into the streets. And that certainly is something uh, that is uh, pretty remarkable and and bigger than anything that I've ever seen here. And this is about my 15th or 16th time reporting from Iran. I've been (coughs) in a lot of demonstrations here in this country as well. The people here, obviously, in a state of mourning, but also very much, John, in a state of anger as well. The bodies of Qasem Soleimani and the others who were killed in that airstrike in Baghdad were this morning eulogized here in Bag, in Tehran, at the Tehran University, and it was the Supreme Leader himself. said the prayers over the bodies that's something uh, that is an honor that is not bestowed on very many people here in this country and it shows how important Qasem Soleimani is to many Iranians obviously he's very uh, controversial in western countries but here in Iran he indeed is someone who is very much revered now The people here, on the one hand, obviously very much in a state of mourning, but they also are in a state of anger. One of the things that we heard earlier today was people chanting death to America, also as we were uh, going live on TV, and many of them saying what they want, what they call a hard revenge. They want their nation to hit back at the U.S. and to do so quite quickly as well.
2: Fred Pike and there reporting earlier. Now, the heightened tensions between Washington and Tehran raising concerns all around the world as the U.S. sends thousands of additional troops to the Middle East. Nick Robertson is live in Riyadh for us. Nick, uh, until recent days, we'd actually seen protests against the, the regime in Iran. And what we're seeing today in light of these pictures is them united against America and against its allies.
4: Yeah, this is, is absolutely the image that Iran wants to portray as what's happening on the streets there, not uh, a counter, a protest against the government, but something that, that shows just how widely the government is supported at a time when so many people in Iran feel that the country is under attack because of the killing of Qasem Soleimani. So this is, uh, you know, this uh, in Iran is certainly the message uh, that the Iranians would want to see then. If we think back to just a few weeks ago, over the past few months in Iraq, uh, anti-Iranian demonstrations there now no more. Uh, yesterday, as the body of Qasem Soleimani was taken through the streets and through some of the uh, religious shrines, Kabla Najaf, there huge crowds out on the out on the streets in support of Soleimani, in support of Iran, in support of the uh, of the uh, Shia proxy groups that Iran supports in Iraq. So this really um, is an indication, certainly from that part of this region, uh, that it has had a unifying effect against U.S interests in Iraq and in Iran, here in Saudi Arabia. Concern, of course, about what comes next. They want the situation to de-escalate. The crown, the the brother of the crown prince here in Saudi Arabia, uh, Khalid bin Salman, essentially the third, sort of, most important man, powerful man in this country, is in Washington today, in the next couple of hours, meeting with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, undoubtedly wanting to find out um, what the United States plans next, what its red lines will be. They're really talking here about trying to find a way to de-escalate, not escalate the situation.
2: And that's the, the message from the entire international community here. But as we heard from Fred there, the Iranians are saying that there will be retaliation here. And I think everybody just watching to see what kind of form that takes. What we've already seen is the Iranians taking what I believe now is the fifth step away from that 2015 nuclear accord for for the Europeans here that were simply trying to hold the fragments of that together, what does this mean for them too and for this accord going forward? Is this now well and truly dead and buried?
4: Um, you know, the German foreign minister is saying that, you know, he's concerned about it. Um, we've heard from a, a, a spokesperson within the German foreign minister ministry sort of coming up after that, mopping it up a little bit and saying, no, that it's not, it's not dead yet. Um, look, if you take take the JCP away, this, this, this multinational nuclear deal, um, it's been a thorn of contention not between, really, between the United States and its European allies ever since President Trump unilaterally pulled out of it. The Europeans have been trying to hold it together, find a monetary mechanism to continue to be able to do business regardless of the sanctions that the United States is putting on Iran, find a way to continue to keep Iran compliant. This additional step now, the Iranians, uh, the foreign minister tweeted earlier today that it is reversible. But the reality is Iran is walking down a road here now that it is very clearly signaling to the world that it will not limit its stockpile. as it had agreed to of enriched uranium that it will enrich uranium above the internationally agreed thresholds um, that it will use uh, more sophisticated centrifuges to enrich uranium faster. So what it's effectively saying here is um, we will go back into compliance if you do what we'll say but effectively they are shortening the path to making a nuclear bomb and that's what the JCPOA, that agreement was designed to thwart. how long Europe can continue to take the, a position supporting Iran as Iran, as, as Iran makes these statements and continues in this vein, um, it's hard to see how that can continue much longer. But it's struggled on so far. But, but things have changed subsequent the killing of Soleimani.
2: Yeah, just one of the uh, increased threats here, Nick. I just want to quickly bring in the Iraq angle here, too. I mean, the message from Iraq has been, look, America is our ally, but Iran is our neighbour here. And they obviously held this non-binding vote over the weekend to expel U.S. troops. The president of the United States responding immediately and threatening extreme sanctions on Iraq. What do we make of this situation, incredulousness, I think, coming from the Iraqis here in light of what we've seen?
4: Yeah, I think it's probably something that's taken aback a lot of uh, the United States allies as well. Look, uh, they the, the the allies, and we've had uh, President Macron of France uh, talking to the uh, uh, talking to the Iraqi Prime Minister and the President there, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has also spoken today with the Iraqi Prime Minister, and both of them are talking about you know how the future relationship, not just of U.S. forces, but the the international coalition of of, of international forces that are in uh, iraq to fight isis how that can go forward and the important words are being raised in those conversations between paris and paris and baghdad and london and baghdad and that is respect to the sovereignty of of iraq and the international understanding is that these forces are in iraq at iraq's request they're not they're not an occupying force um so you know president trump's statements fly in the face of that um and also when you think about the sanctions that the United States put on Iraq after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1991 and, and through the 90s, these sanctions that effectively diminish the living standards of millions of Iraqis, this is a very bitter pill for Iraqis to swallow and it's one that's likely to t- make them want to turn their backs on the United States. So there's a rearguard action by the United States, European allies and partners in this international coalition to try to undo the damage that President Trump appears to be doing in his relationship with Iraq at the moment. But it's an uphill battle. That is not something that's going to be won over easily. I think everyone's trying to slow this all down, roll it out more slowly, and and hopefully, and hope that in the process of slowing down the tempers and the anger here, um, that a, a, a diplomatic agreement can be found down the road.
2: Nick Robertson, thank you so much for joining us on that. Now, where we are seeing direct market reaction, of course, in the oil market, Brent and WTI adding to Friday's 3% gains. John Defterius joins us now on this. John, great to have you with us. Earlier on the show, I compared this Thanks. to the, the 14% rise that we saw in oil prices in light of the attacks on Saudi oil facilities back in September of last year. It feels mooted to me here, muted. What do you make of what we're seeing right now in the oil markets and why
5: well, you make a very interesting point because, uh, as you know, uh, most investors are risk adverse and the red lights are flashing, especially if you're sitting in the Middle East right now. I spoke to a senior source at a state oil company. He said it's uh, unchartered uncharted territory and that the terrain is very complex. And I would add, I think investors are being very complacent. Julia, we have a five percent gain between Friday and Monday. And we're knocking on the door of seventy dollars a barrel which, by the way, is a nine-month high, even after that Aramco attack. But this is a very different market. Before the Aramco attack, the market was lower because there was worries about oversupplies. This shock from Donald Trump and the attack against Soleimani uh, hit when we had a market that was climbing. Remember, at the early December meeting of OPEC, uh, they decided to cut production to 1.7 million barrels a day. So we've been on a staircase even higher and then this shock to the market, Uh, we could go much higher because it is a very complex situation. What do I mean by that? Uh, We don't know what Iran's going to do next. They're very crafty. Does it target U.S. embassies in the region? Could it go after U.S. jetliners, which wouldn't be the first time flying here in the Middle East? Or they extend it to the proxies, their allies here uh, in the region, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, for example. Do they go after energy infrastructure? That's why I think This march up to $70 a barrel, it is significant, a 5% gain. But it could be much worse because we sit in a region that sits on top of two-thirds of the proven oil reserves around the world.
2: Yeah, when we think about tackling or targeting energy um infrastructure, I go back to what I mentioned earlier with with Saudi Aramco and to your point. Is it no surprise today that we see immediate price pressure on Saudi Aramco? I believe it's trading now at the lowest level that we've seen since it, it IPO'd
5: yeah again a very clear point you're making here julia you would think that higher prices means higher revenues that's the case for saudi aramco but the sell-off that we see here has all to do with the resilience of aramco going forward we had the september 14th attacks that we talked about would iran try to test aramco again that's a huge question mark that nobody has an answer for some of the other state oil companies that again that are aligned with the united states do they get tested then i think we cannot ignore the fact that the strait of hormuz comes back into play again anytime iran's had a problem in the international markets or with sanctions it does threaten to cause havoc within the strait that would be to tankers don't forget over the last nine months we saw attacks against pipelines in saudi arabia tankers south of the strait of hormuz even airports in southern saudi arabia It could happen again, and that's why sources I'm speaking to today say, I'm surprised at the market reaction in Asia, Europe, and the United States. Here in the Middle East, it's a very different feeling overall.
2: Yeah, very measured and uh, surprisingly so. John Defterios, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, here in the United States, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying the House plans to vote on a war powers resolution to limit the president's military actions here as far as Iran is concerned. Boris Sanchez is live at the White House for us. Boris, what are the options here and what can be achieved with a vote both in the House and in the Senate here?
6: Yeah, well, ultimately, the goal for Nancy Pelosi is to try to restrict President Trump's ability uh, to uh, attack Iran without any uh, caution as to what sites he targets. For example, uh, just last night, the president contradicting his own secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, saying that he would attack Iranian cultural sites as part of a response to any Iranian aggression. Ultimately, though, the president does have wide powers when it comes to Article 2 of the Constitution. Uh, That's the argument that we heard from Counselor to the President, Kellyanne Conway, this morning scoffing at this resolution that uh, House Speaker Pelosi has promised to present. Uh, She effectively argued that the president is well within his authority uh, to carry out uh, a number of measures to try to protect Americans uh, from the Iranians. Uh, We should also point out that uh, in regard to those cultural sites, uh, Conway tried to sort of recast them as legitimate targets, arguing that some Iranian cultural sites are also military sites. So you're trying to uh, sort of recast them in a way that makes it more palatable for the president to pursue uh, that sort of measure. Obviously, we've heard from the Iranians, uh, our colleague Fred Pleitkin, speaking to one of their uh, senior military officials, saying that if President Trump pursues that kind of policy, then the gloves are truly off. And Iran has several hundred targets that it intends to go after, depending on what the Americans do. Julia.
2: Boris, great to have you with us. Boris Sanchez there. Thank you for that. All right, so let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories now, making headlines around the world. To Australia now, where thick smoke from the deadly bushfires is stalling rescue efforts as authorities race to take advantage of a second day of light rain and cool winds. Officials have reopened roads as conditions ease, but warn that dangerous weather will return later this week. The death toll since September has been revised upwards now to 25. Earlier, the Prime Minister unveiled a recovery fund of almost $1.5 billion. Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault trial gets underway today after a hearing jury selection is scheduled to begin on Tuesday. The former Hollywood producer is charged with raping a woman in a New York hotel room in 2013. Another woman has accused him of sexual assault, this time in 2006. Weinstein has pleaded not guilty and vows he will be, quote, fully exonerated. He's not expected to take the stand. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First mover coming up, U.S.-Iran tensions shaking global markets. More analysis after this. Stay with us on CNN. I'm oh sorry. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. Let me give you a look of what we're seeing as far as US futures at this moment, pointing to a weaker open, as we mentioned earlier, losses of more than half a percent at this stage. Stocks set to fall into negative territory for the new year as a result. If we continue to see these losses by the end of the session, let me give you a look as well. A quick cross asset market snapshot. We've got the MSCI World Stock Index down around a quarter of a percent. The US dollar index also losing around the same. Safe havens though gaining. The Swiss franc up some two-tenths of one percent against the dollar. Similar story for the yen on Friday as well, seeing gains. Gold, the obvious one here, up by one and a half percent. Now sitting at more than six-year highs. The flight to safety in bond markets, of course, playing out. I'm showing you the 10-year Treasury yield here, a touch lower, 1.77%. Let's talk this through Jason Dreho, the head of America's Asset Allocation at UBS Global Wealth Management joins us now. Jason, great to have you with us. To be Just here. stepping onto a little mm-hmm. box here to make the hype. I don't know if you saw that. I apologise. It's so tough to price geopolitical risk for investors here. What do we think and what are you saying to people?
7: So it's really difficult to like kind of calibrate these yeah. risks. So what you try and do is focus more on if things do escalate, what impact would it have on the economic fundamentals? Mm-hmm. Would it slow growth? Would it hit earnings? We've seen incidents like this in the past, like last year, when there was uh, strikes to the uh, Saudi oil fields, Yes. Where oil prices rose equity markets risk assets kind of sold off and you kind of really calibrate realize this is not going to have significant economic impact are
2: you surprised by the lack of action that we've seen or the lack of price increase that we've seen in the oil markets as a result of this i mean we were comparing it earlier to what we saw in september with the attack on the saudi oil facilities and that the price difference here is very Different actually.
7: So I think one of the reasons why we haven't seen such a big price impact this time is the expectations for oil prices this year, at least in our expectation, was they would kind of fall a little bit from the levels they were prior to this news. Right. Because there's a lot of oil supply, more so than demand. So just the general economic fundamentals would suggest that oil prices be a little bit weaker. And I think when you see oil prices move up higher, People expect, investors expect, you'll get more supply from shale producers in the U.S. Other markets can come online. So it sort of caps the upside unless things really, really escalate and there's a real disruption in like, supply for the Middle East, for So example.
2: important. We always see this knee-jerk reaction, but it tends to very quickly reprice. And to your point, the fundamentals are what we need to keep in mind here, ultimately. Exactly. Norway, I guess, is another one where we're seeing uh, increased production as well to provide that supply. Uh, uh, so important. Yes. Yeah. Um, gold. Talk to me about gold.
7: So gold did very well last year it was up 18%. It should still do well in this environment where interest rates are really low. So when you own gold you don't get kind of any coupon you're not getting interest payments. But when interest rates elsewhere are really low, the kind of the cost, opportunity cost of investing in gold is low, therefore people tend to buy it. Globally, central banks are trying to diversify their holdings, buying more gold. So, structurally, there's a demand for gold. So, we see gold going from around 1525 right now up to about 1600, which is about 5%. Wow. So, not as much as 18 last year. But, I think structurally, there's a demand for it that should lead to continued price appreciation this year.
2: The other important thing to keep in mind with gold is, is the US dollar. It's priced in US dollars. Yes. So, this is really important. You've got to have a pretty firm view on where you think dollar prices are going to go in, in 2020. As well, if you're comfortable holding gold.
7: So we think the dollar generally is going to decrease against most okay, currencies.
2: Okay, so that helps. So that helps because so <laughs> as,
7: as the dollar goes down, commodity prices tend to go higher all else equal. Um, we've seen an environment where if global growth gets better, then it should lift other currencies vis-a-vis the dollar, which has done very well for really the past six or seven years, to the point where it's probably a little bit expensive. And long-term, that should start to kind of reverse. And it could happen as soon as this year.
2: What does this mean for things like defence stocks? Because I've had a number of conversations with people who, even at the back end of last year, were saying if you look at the United States defence stocks, they did well. In 2019, we've got an increased budget spending, particularly from this White House, into defence stocks. And then just Geopolitical risk thrown in. What's your view here? Do we need to be cautious?
7: So, uh, defense stocks did reasonably well last year yes. in the industrial sector, which had been sort of hurt because of the global trade tensions. So, they were sort of relatively good performers, partly because the market was pricing in this sort of increase in defense spending. That was already the case before, but now this news on what's happened in the Middle East with Iran. Defence stocks in general could get a further boost because of that's not priced into the market. So within that sector, that looks like to be one of the more attractive beneficiaries of what's happened.
2: OK, so if we talk about 2020 and beyond, how should investors be positioned? They've got to keep an eye on the geopolitical risk. But there's a whole host of other factors that we need to consider here and knee-jerk reactions are not advised. So when we started
7: this year, we actually thought that the macro environment overall was relatively benign. So global growth should be getting better this year. That's a positive. Inflation is low. Central banks cut interest rates a lot last year, so they're very loose accommodated policy. So a lot of very good factors, which explains why the markets moved up a lot at the, the end of last year. So this doesn't really change that story that much, no. but just a lot of goodness is already priced into financial markets. So the question is, how much higher do we go from here? That's, there's more of limited the upside as opposed to being get too pessimistic at this point in time.
2: Best case scenario here?
7: Best case scenario is that sort of cooler heads prevail. Uh, We don't get further escalation in the Middle East. Economic data gets better. And we see good performance for equity markets, especially outside of the U.S., which have been real laggers for the past, well, for the decade. So
2: even emerging markets, maybe even European stocks as well, where specifically, very quickly? So I think
7: emerging markets is our favorite area. Um, They've definitely underperformed the U.S. for the past, well, year and a half. Even on Friday, we saw manufacturing data from the U.S. Yes. to some point on the downside. It's actually improved on emerging markets. So you've seen kind of a bit of a bifurcation. That should lead to better performance for emerging markets relative to the U.S.
2: We'll keep up on this later on this week, I'm sure. Jason Greyhoe there. The market opens next. Well done, team. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this Monday morning. And as expected, we've got a weaker open across the board here for U.S. stock markets. Wall Street is down for a second straight session, seven tenths of a percent, as you can see there for the Dow. This follows the U.S. attack that killed Iranian General Qasim Soleimani. Stocks still only around one and a half percent away from record highs. So, perspective here important. Tech stocks. In fact, seeing the biggest pullback in early trading, the momentum stocks here. Airline stocks also among today's biggest losers on concerns, I guess, about how rising oil prices could hurt future profits. Let's go there specifically, the oil markets. Brent and US crude both up around more than one percent actually for Brent here, WTI. at some nine-tenths of 1%. There are other concerns for investors beyond the Middle East, though, as well. Let me uh, give you a look at what we've seen in terms of some of the data here. Weak numbers on U.S. manufacturing on Friday. Factory activity fell for the fifth straight month. New numbers out today showing European business activity still barely in expansion mode, but European factory activity is now contracted for an 11th straight month. So, uh, yeah, keep the fundamentals in focus here, too. But for now, I want to take you back to our top story. Take a look at these live pictures. The casket for Qasim Soleimani is being taken through an emotional crowd in the city of Qom. Meanwhile, massive anti-U.S. protests continue across Iran. Fred Pyken is live in Tehran with the very latest. Uh, Fred, great to have you with us. Fred, emotional scenes. And as I mentioned, there live pictures here of uh, the casket, the, the general's body being carried through the city of Qom here. Just talk about the reaction that you've seen from uh, the people there.
3: Well, right now, uh, Julia, what we've seen uh, on the streets in Tehran, we were right in the middle of those uh, funeral processions that took place uh, in Tehran where the casket of Qasem Soleimani uh, was in the main grand mosque at uh, Tehran University and then uh, was uh, brought along the streets to one of the main uh, points there, one of the main memorials inside Tehran. And- We saw a lot of people in a great deal of grief, a lot of people also with a great deal of anger, quite frankly. When we were around there, a lot of people continuously screaming death to America, saying that they want revenge for the death of Qasem Soleimani. And, you know, I've been uh, at uh, demonstrations here in Iran before. I've really never seen anything on the scale of what we saw today in Tehran with the amount of people that came out there. we're estimating that it was hundreds of thousands. There's some Iranian outlets that are saying that it could have been well over a million uh, and and indeed more than uh, uh, millions of people uh, that actually came out to line the streets there as Qasem Soleimani's casket and the others who were killed in that U.S. airstrikes were brought through the streets of Tehran. So a great deal of anger going on. And of course, You do have the Iranian government and the Iranian leadership vowing revenge for the death of Qasem Soleimani, senior advisor to Iran's supreme leader, telling me that revenge is going to happen. It's going to be a military retaliation. It's going to be retaliation against military sites. The Iranians also saying that they don't want a full on war with the United States. The Iranians also saying that they already have a successor for Qasem Soleimani. He vowed revenge day as well. So as you can see here in Iran right now, this nation really very much in a state of grieving, in a state of mourning, but at the same time also extremely angry and vowing to take revenge as well, Julia.
2: But what we've also seen is uh, the president of the United States doubling down, it seems, on his threat to potentially target mm. cultural sites in Iran. I mean, we've been talking about this already yeah. on the show, this idea that perhaps The result of this is uniting a nation that in many cases is divided, has been protesting against the Mm. regime. What impact would targeting cultural sites have on the people here and and the stance that they're taking against America, but also against America's allies here too?
3: Well, you know, I I think that just the president tweeting about that is already something that's united people uh, here in in Iran a great deal. But you're absolutely right. We were on the ground there today in that demonstration and one person came up to us and he said, look, we have these divisions in our society. We've had these recent protests that, of course, uh, had that uh, crackdown on the protests as well. But they said the death of Qasem Soleimani has really unified uh, this nation. One of the interesting things was yesterday in the town of Ahwaz, which was very restive as those protests were going on, also Tens of thousands of people tur- turned out there to mourn the death of Qasem Soleimani and to pay respect to his casket as it went through uh, the streets there. So that alone was a unifying factor for many Iranians. And then President Trump tweeting uh, about possibly hilding, uh, hitting sites that are important to Iranian culture is certainly something that didn't go down well at all. With many Iranians on social media, you have people already posting pictures of the many Iranian cultural sites and saying these places really shouldn't be hit. One thing that Iranians can seriously unite around is the fact that this country is thousands of years old and has these very valuable cultural sites. And that senior advisor to Iran's supreme leader also told me if President Trump's talking about hitting 52 cultural sites in Iran, then the Iranians will hit 300. Uh, Julia?
2: Yeah, that's the response. Fred Pleitgen, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Well, right, let's get some further insight now. Robert Jordan is the former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And he joins us now, Ambassador, great to have you on the show with us. I know it's difficult to debate the current events without discussing what's been brewing between these two nations and Iraq over the last four decades. But if we we keep it specific to to what we're seeing right now, what's your assessment? How high are the risks here of further military engagement, perhaps, here too?
1: Well, the risks are certainly increased. Uh, I trust that when uh, this decision to take out Soleimani was made, uh, some of those risks were evaluated and appreciated. But I do think uh, it's very important to see here uh, the deterioration of the relationship with Iraq, uh, a sovereign country in which this hit was executed. Uh, likewise, uh, unifying the country of Iran uh, are second and third order effects that I, I, I think we've got to uh, take account of. The risk of military confrontation comes from what uh, retaliation we see next from Iran. Uh, There is a stair step of escalation here uh, that I think has a chance of getting out of hand. Uh, Iran is preparing some kind of retaliation. At the same time, they have to be considering what sort of retaliation the United States will execute in response to that. Uh, We saw something similar to this at the beginning of World War I, uh, where events got out of control. Uh, I'm not saying we're there yet by any means, but I do think that there's a danger out there of increased military confrontation uh, that could really lead to catastrophic results.
2: Ambassador General Petraeus, the former CIA director, in an interview over the weekend, called this, quote, very significant efforts to reestablish deterrence here in light of what you were saying about the potential for tit to tip for tat here in terms of response from yeah. Iran and then what the United States does. Do you think this may be enough of a deterrent to say, look, this White House, this administration is willing to take action?
1: Well, I, I think uh, it's a mixed message that we're seeing here when we saw the events of this summer. Uh, The uh, downing of an American intelligence drone, the attacks uh, in the Gulf uh, and then the attacks on the Saudi oil infrastructure, there was no response from the Americans. Uh, So Iran didn't pay a price and they felt perhaps free to continue to escalate. Uh, Now we've come back with a a really a cataclysmic response, a massive response. uh, And uh, I'm not sure that it's going to be as much of a deterrent as we would like. Uh, but it certainly does show that finally we're willing to take action. Uh, Had we taken action uh, after the uh, attacks on the Saudi oil facilities, uh, at least in a measured way, uh, perhaps Iran would have paid a price and realized that there there is a deterrent capacity out there. What we now see is the potential, I think, for uh, unbridled, uh, uncontrolled responses on each side, and that's what I think we've got to really uh, keep an eye on. Ambassador, do you
2: think when we look at the and there are many risks and possibilities here. The only real beneficiaries, perhaps, of the confusion and the rise in tension here is al-Qaeda and Islamic State.
1: Well, I think they are going to benefit from this, certainly in the short run. Uh, If America truly is expelled from Iraq, uh, then we slip back into the same situation we saw after 2011, when ISIS uh, and al-Qaeda were able to uh, enter into a resurgence uh, in Iraq. They and then invited us back in in 2014 uh, to try to straighten things out. Uh, we can't keep bouncing back and forth like this. We need to have some sort of stability in the relationship, and I think this assassination has, at least for the short term, uh, endangered that.
2: What do you want to see from regional powers, I and mean, to your point, uh, the Saudi Arabians were incredibly quiet in light of the attacks that we saw right. on their facilities. They've been very muted in response to this as well. Clearly they want stability in the region, and, and the international community have called for de-escalation, but what more can the GCC nations here do to try and help?
1: Well, I think there's first of all some lack of unity within the GCC. Uh, The state of of Qatar, uh, the Emirate of Qatar, uh, made a statement that the drone uh, that killed Soleimani did not come from them and most likely came from Kuwait. Kuwait has now denied that. So they're all uh, scrambling right now, I think, to not be implicated uh, in the drone attack. Uh, The Saudis have been surprisingly quiet. That may be partly because uh, at least the prime minister of Iraq has reported Uh, that Soleimani was going to meet with him uh, to discuss Saudi efforts to de-escalate tensions with Iran. Now, that may have come on the heels of the American failure to respond after the oil attacks, but the Saudis certainly uh, may have had an interest in trying to de-escalate with Iran, which, of course, now has uh, been greatly interrupted uh, by these events. So we haven't seen anything from the Saudis or the Emiratis right now, uh, and I think they are probably keeping their powder dry and trying to figure out how not to be caught in the crossfire. They are certainly at risk uh, as an ally of the United States if Iran does choose to retaliate.
2: Ambassador, just very quickly, do you believe that Americans are less safe as a result of the decision that was taken here by the administration?
1: Certainly in the short term, I think that's the case. Uh, We have uh, asked all Americans to leave Iraq uh, immediately. Uh, We have drawn down at the embassy... Uh, and I think we put uh, all of our uh, installations uh, in the region on uh, on high alert. So I think Americans, at least right now, are much less safe uh, than they were uh, earlier this week.
2: Robert Jordan, former U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. All right, up next as Tehran vows revenge on the United States. We take a look at one of its potential weapons of war, a cyber attack. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. Iran has found revenge for the death of General Soleimani. One of Tehran's potential weapons is a cyber attack. Over the past decade, we've seen multiple examples of cyber-based attacks out of Tehran. Between 2011 and 2013, Iran attacked Bank of America, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. In 2013, it hacked into the control system of a key New York dam, and two years ago, nine Iranians were charged with stealing data and intellectual property by hacking into hundreds of universities and companies. Johnny's now is Heimu Nigam. He's founder and CEO of Cyber Security Affairs. Heimu, great to have you with us on the show. Let's start there. What is the most probable risk here? Does it go to American infrastructure, like dams, like utilities? Do we need to focus there specifically?
8: Well, thanks for having me, Julie. I think one of the things that we have to focus on is that whatever cyber attack happens, it's going to be very personal. And personal in our country means attacking entertainment, attacking travel, attacking where you are, the New York Stock Exchange or other stock exchanges, and attacking our financial institutions. And so when you look at that, the best way that Iran can do this is by going after things like that but also things that are connected to the critical infrastructure because all of those things are powered by oil gas and other things and the critical infrastructure is all connected so that's where i think the focus can be along with spreading out to make it personal
2: how well protected are these, uh, these types of, of infrastructures, utilities, power grids? I have to, be, I have to say I'm, I'm kind of concerned about their ability to protect themselves and to ward off this kind of threat.
8: You're absolutely right there, because one of the things that state and local systems always wrestle with is resources. So this may look like a battle between the U.S. federal government and the Iranian government, but at the end of the day, it's the state and locals that are sitting targets. And it's you saw it in the New York. If the New York system was actually live at the time or connected to the dam, once those hackers got in, they could have opened up the dams. And that would have created a major flooding situation. Now imagine that in the Hoover Dam or other places like that.
2: You've actually listed five key points to watch, that just being one of them. One of those five is fastest routes is that they can hire hackers on the dark net. So these don't have to even be Iranian hackers. They can just find hackers out there. Explain this as a as a specific risk here, because for me, this is quite fascinating.
8: Well, one of the things that people always are focused on when it comes to countries like Iran is, well, their cyber capabilities or cyber war capabilities or what people call or what I call so and so. The reality is go to the dark net and put out a call for help. You don't have to say you're the Iranian government or Iranian intelligence. All you have to say is I'm willing to pay. Here's the targets. Here's what I need done, either ransomware or malware or freezing up systems or denial of service attacks. There's plenty of hackers out there willing to do it for money. And in that situation, you don't actually have to train anyone. You don't have to do what you do in physical boots on the ground, which is put in the resources, put people through boot camp, make them trained, make them qualified, and do all of that. You just have to put out a call and make sure you pay them. And there's plenty of hackers willing to take that.
2: What about using other proxies or relative enemies of the United States? I guess the first one that comes to mind is is Russian hackers, for example. Is that another potential route that they can go down? Yes,
8: absolutely, Julie. One of the things that we've already seen is that Russia has partnered up with Iran in the past. And Russia is an expert at information warfare. So you could imagine Iran doing it but partnering it with allies that are experts. U.S. partners with allies all the time. You're in a region where allies are constantly shifting. As you were saying, and the ambassador was talking about just earlier, people are all of a sudden silent because they have other interests. There are countries who are saying, it wasn't me, it was them. And so in a a personal situation like this, there's lots of moving parts. There's lots of allies who may use it as an opportunistic Um, method to go in and say what will help you do an information war war campaign and you won't even know that that's happening you'll start seeing videos for example being posted on Facebook and going out through Twitter that are pushing out agendas that are pro-Iranian anti-american and may not know that it's actually coming from there
2: Hey, me very quickly, how long before we could see some kind of an attack? How long does it take to coordinate this kind of attack? And what can companies do in the interim to try and help protect themselves?
8: Well, I think th- some of these things are already ready to go. I wouldn't doubt it if they're already in the works. As a company, I would say make sure your systems are locked down. They have the latest, and I say latest meaning operating systems, latest security uh, protocols in place, because that's usually where the weaknesses are. You install the security, but you forget to update it. And as a as a country, as a people, as a company, that's where our focus needs to be.
2: Makes perfect sense. Uh, Hamu, great to have you with us. The founder and CEO of Cyber Security Affairs. Thank you for that. Thanks, Julie. More to come after this. and We'll take a look at the market reaction too. Stay with us. First move, with a look at the broader market. Shares of Boeing are down around 1%. The aerospace giant confirms that it's uncovered another potential design flaw with the 737 MAX. This time, it's a problem with the plane's wiring. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, what more do we know on this?
9: Yeah, just what you pointed out. There was these reports over the weekend of potential issues with the wiring that Boeing has confirmed. It's just Yet another big problem for Boeing as it seeks to try and get the 737 MAX back in the air sometime soon. But that is not likely to happen, I think, at any point in the foreseeable future, given these new revelations and shares are down this morning. As a result, there's also a report that Boeing may be looking to raise more debt because of its financial problems as a result of the 737 MAX grounding.
2: Yeah, you just have to assume that the time horizon here for getting these planes back up into the air extends further. Paul, let's talk more broadly about what we're seeing for for markets right now. I've been calling it a measured response here throughout the show in light of broader geopolitical concerns, though they are tough to price here. But we are still seeing a sort of general flight to safety here across asset markets here.
9: Yeah, I think there is a continuation of Friday's broader market sell-off. You are seeing gold, obviously, as a classic flight to safety trade, that is higher. But I think You know, oil is also moving higher because of the geopolitical tensions in the Middle East and some oil stocks are moving up as well. And defense stocks, it's uh, a bit perverse, unfortunately, that we are talking about more military conflict. And obviously, investors go out and buy the likes of Lockheed Martin and uh, Raytheon and some of the other defense contractors. But those are companies that could potentially do well if there is a prolonged military conflict with Iran.
2: Yeah, we were talking about this earlier on the show, actually. did They uh, did pretty well in uh, 2019 as well. The question is, does it extend in light of what we're seeing? Paul, I have to say, though, we are still just off record highs, though. So some consolidation here. In that vein, makes sense. These stock markets incredibly resilient here, I think, and we have to bring it at some point back to the fundamentals, and probably quite quickly.
9: Yeah, I think everyone is going to be very eagerly looking at what first quarter uh, earnings outlooks are like. We're going to get fourth quarter earnings reports in a couple of weeks, and companies are going to probably talk about decent holiday uh, season and uh, you know the you know the uh, trade uh, truce that we have with China, hopefully boosting things as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, plenty of you have to consider. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. The president just tweeting that uh, Iran won't have nuclear weapons. Not what Iran's saying. But that's it for the show. Our coverage of Iran continues next. Stay with CNN.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.